All right, everybody, welcome to episode 160 of the Superhouse Podcast. This is Andrew, as always, and I'm once again joined by Stefan Avius. Yo, yo, what up? And this, yeah, and this week we have uh, on our show Matthew Childs. He is the director of an upcoming documentary film called Ninja Boom, which chronicles the rise of the ninja archetype in popular culture starting from its early appearance in Japanese books and comics finally culminating in the ninja boom of the mid-1980s in America. Thank you for coming on, Matt. Yeah, my pleasure. Happy to be here. All right. So I was wondering, dude, in your own words, what is Ninja Boom? Well, I think Ninja Boom is basically my love letter to uh, growing up in the 80s and that culture of... uh, VHS when you still had to go back and rent movies and walk to the video store and kind of shop and see what you know type of selections were there for you and uh, I was a I was a child of the 80s and so uh, growing up with Kung Fu magazines and black belt magazines uh, just totally inspired by this character of the ninja and kind of what it meant to me at the time so out of all the martial arts, why'd you focus in on like ninjas and ninjutsu more than the other ones? Well, you know, I was reading a lot about Bruce Lee when I was younger and, and kind of uh, really into Jackie Chan and, you know, Kung Fu. And then right around the time uh, Stephen Hayes started publishing a bunch of his books and a lot of the magazines kind of got a hold of this ninja archetype, this ninja character. Um, you know, it was just unlike anything else that uh, was kind of on the scene. You know, I think when Bruce Lee passed away, there's a little bit of a void. Um, uh. pop, you know, popular culture sort of likes to latch on to things, and, and Bruce Lee was it. You know, he was so charismatic, and, and uh, you know, he was kind of like the full package. And uh, after he passed away, you know, that movement of Kung Fu in the 70s kind of left a gap, and uh, suddenly the the few articles that started to surface uh, regarding the ninja just took hold in the media. And so I was kind of right there. I was already, I was already reading the magazines and already kind of ordering weapons off the back pages of, of black belt magazine. And then suddenly when the ninja appeared, it was like, hold the phone. What is this? (laughs) I need to know all about this. This is like the coolest thing ever. So it's just something about stealth and the black suit. Oh, uh, 100%, a, yeah. 100%. Yeah. I think that, uh, you know, the mystery and the intrigue uh, mixed with the mask and uh, you, you took something that was already really cool and then you, you kind of don't tell everything about it. You know, it's secret. It's hidden. Um, it's new. Uh, it just had it had like the, the perfect formula for, you know, a young 10 year old, nine year old kid to just get all in, you know. So you were kind of around in, even before the ninja boom of the 80s, and then you, uh, you, you could actually sort of feel that, personally, that, that gap in the culture? Yeah, you know, like I was, I was about nine years old, probably seven, eight, nine, and I was a um, typical kid, you know, into skateboarding, uh, into martial arts, and I was already kind of doing gymnastics and stuff like that. So I was already... I was already into a lot of that stuff. And so that's why for me, it was real personal when, when the Ninja came out, it was like literally all of my favorite cool stuff was just like put into one package, you know? So, so yeah, I was all in. Um, and then, yeah, <laughs> like, like I said, uh, one thing that was kind of fortunate for me was uh, my father is uh, he's an avid knife collector 
and uh, oh, cool. he's really into uh, throwing knives and, and throwing to- tomahawks <laughs> nice. and stuff like that. So he was already ordering the books. You know, he, he, I think he already had ordered one of Stephen Hayes' books that he kind of had on the shelf. And so that, that collection of stuff he already had kind of set the stage. So it was real easy for me to kind of get into it and start playing around with the weapons and, and ordering a lot of that stuff. Your basically your mindset for for this film is not to cover the entirety of ninjutsu history, right? Yeah, I think uh, I set out to have it be kind of a fun project. Um, like I said, uh, really capturing sort of my childhood vibe of what it was like in the '80s. So a lot of VHS culture and um, just you know back before the internet internet era when things were a lot more accessible and, and easy, you know, when, when information was a lot harder to get. So yeah, capturing a little bit more of the fun um, and kind of the intrigue of what was going on back then in the eighties. Um, but, you know, still delving into some of the history and, uh, but mostly celebrating more of the pop cultural elements, um, sort of how this, how this character popped into the scene into America and you know how it crossed the pond from Japan and into America, and maybe some of the different places in which it got lost in translation a little bit, or or maybe where there's some interesting stories. So, yeah. So uh, there was a ninja boom in Japan itself in the '60s, right? And then yeah, that's correct. Twenty years later, we have our own huge one in America, and uh, yeah, you mentioned things get kind of lost in translation. So I was wondering what are some of the differences between the two booms? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there was definitely uh, the first boom was in the 1960s and uh, that's when they had their big explosion of the ninja character. Um, a few articles sort of, it's kind of funny how it, it happened similarly in both, in both cultures um, where the media might've gotten a hold of a, of a news story and then, uh, you know, someone wrote a book and then that turned into a movie, you know, so it kind of entered the scene in sort of the same way. But uh, it's really interesting that it took 20 years, you know, to cross the pond. Um, it's sort of unthinkable in this day and age with information and the way things move so quickly in pop culture uh, that it would take 20 years for something like this to to finally make its way, you know, across the pond. Mm. One of the things that I've realized after living in Japan and talking with a lot of Japanese people over the years, one of the major, major differences in the way I think people see ninjas in general is that in Japan, ninja is like a magician. Like a, mm. there's, a, there's a lot of magical elements to the character. That's right. And I, I feel like in America, it's much more uh, you're a stealthy motherfucker and you're great at martial arts, which is a more realistic yeah, version. I agree. I think I think basically uh, there's a there's a different element there when it comes down to Shinto and Buddhist religion mixed with uh, folklore and uh, folk magic and things like that. And so they already had a uh, sort of a, a history of that stuff. And so the ninja character, uh, you know, up in the mountains in Japan, uh, definitely would have been in more of a smaller village setting. Um, if they were hiding out and they were, uh, you know, blending in as local villagers and, and or farmers, um, they would have been right there in with that local folk belief. Um, and many times kind of, uh, 
capitalizing on that. You know, a lot of the magical elements might might have their um, origin in in religious, you know, religious and um, spiritual concepts. But they knew, you know, if a local villager thought that they were they were you know endowed with magical powers and uh, were able to trick the local villagers into thinking they were more than they were, you know, they were taking advantage of that for sure. So I think that we don't have that cultural element and so we sort of just go to what we like as as american culture we we love the the spy vibe and we love the the ultimate warrior type uh archetype (laughs) (laughs) what do you what do you think that like i know you're just you're kind of covering just the pop culture side mainly but i was wondering is there anything that you you think you you would wish people knew more about ninjutsu um i think you know, as a kid kind of growing up, I think one of the reasons why I even wanted to make this film uh, was because I often felt like even, you know, it was like a 10 year old watching, uh, you know, Revenge of the Ninja or Enter the Ninja, uh, you know, on the big screen. Or uh, there was a, there was actually an old uh, TV show with Lee Van Cleef called The Master. And uh-huh. uh, that was a really that was a fun one. Um, but, you know, real cheesy, you know, 80s television. Um, but I always felt like they got it wrong, even as a kid, not even knowing much, even just reading a few books and kind of some magazine articles already, I felt like Hollywood was sort of, you know, messing it up. Uh, and, (laughs) and even at 10, I was like, oh man, like this sucks. This isn't what, this could be so much better. I was like the 10 year old critic, you know, like if Rotten (laughs) Rotten Tomatoes was around back then, I would have been all up on it, you know, like, (laughs) So, uh, so yeah, I think that, you know, if you, obviously, if you want to get into the history, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of mistakes and understanding, but it's a really obscure history. And, uh, and I think that's part of it. So I think that it's going to be always really hard to figure out the true origin of the ninja. It's kind of like, uh, the CIA, you know, a lot of times we don't even really, know about things that happened in the cia until things are declassified many many years later and uh and it's only then that we start to get a little bit of a better picture of what might have happened back in the 70s or in the 80s so uh i think that the origins of the ninja um a lot of their history um who and who was not you know ninja um even in in japanese politics i think a lot of that is already uh you know, confused and the history books, you know, will never have it right. So, yeah, um, there's a lot. I think that we'll probably never know. Um, or at least not, not very many people will know. Um, yeah. And I guess some other things, uh, maybe like the weaponry, you know, and it's, it's typical though. I think if you talk to anyone who, you know, reads a newspaper article, uh, that they were interviewed for, or, uh, you know, sees themselves, you know, depicted in Hollywood films, you know, they never quite get it right. It's more like the story is more important than, than the factual history. So I think a lot of times the research is, is sort of superficial. So that's one of the things that I really Mm -hmm. tried to do was uh, to dig a little deeper. Um, You know, I've spent about five years or so, even just, you know, getting as far as I have self-producing this and kind of doing it all myself, but I wanted to take my time and, you know, be in no rush, but just sort of try to get the story and history. If I was, even if I was going to cover it just a little bit, I wanted to make sure I was as accurate as possible. 
be true to my 10 year old self, you know? Cool. <laughs> Hell yeah. So what's some of the stuff you're going to be kind of like un- uncovering in the movie? Well, um, I think some of the things that I find real fascinating are, uh, like we talked about earlier, just the, um, the ways in which information spread back then and, and how things kind of crossed the pond real organically. You know, back before the internet, you know, there was an article and then that article became, you know, maybe a book. And then that book was read by these people. And so that's been really fun uh, as I go interview um, I interviewed uh, Larry Hama, uh, the writer and, cool. you know, creator of a lot of the G.I. Joe characters that we know yeah. today. Um, awesome. So he was, you know, instrumental in uh, the Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow characters uh, from G.I. Joe, which were, you know, huge for me as a kid. Yeah. And, yeah. and even today, you know, have like uh, have sustained and uh, persisted, like still getting huge, you know, huge props for being some of the coolest characters out there in the comic world, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So uh so Larry Larry was great and uh, I interviewed him um in his uh his apartment in in New York and we got into sort of how he came up with these characters, you know, and and he was Japanese or he is Japanese and uh he he used to um basically be left at these Buddhist centers in New York uh sort of like the parents would want to go away for the weekend or or just have a day off. And they could drop their kids off like free babysitting at these, uh, oh, like wow. at, at like the Buddhist temple, you know? Oh, wow. Awesome. Yeah. And so they kind of had like activity nights and things like that. And so he basically saw uh, some of the old Japanese um, classic movies out of the 60s, like Shinobi no Mono and some of these, uh, these samurai type films, um, The Blind Samurai. And, mm. uh, but in, at one point, he said he saw this ninja character. And uh, it kind of like really just, just, he just captivated him. So from those childhood memories of, of watching these old Japanese uh, samurai and ninja films at this Buddhist temple, it kind of made its way into GI Joe many years later, they needed a character. So uh, he kind of drew on his cultural heritage and, and his childhood memories. He brought up Shinobu no Mono. Uh, he did. He did. Wow. Yeah, it was something he watched, uh, you know, on the, on the big screen, at uh at these buddhist temples that they'd screen back in the in the early 80s or or late 70s i guess it would have been is is that what kind of brought about the original ninja boom in japan was that movie or was that just a product of the boom itself yeah that was a little bit more um there used to be some some different books that were uh made for children or uh kind of like young adult fiction i guess is what we'd have you know now today uh, so Tachikawa Bunko were like these, uh, these like adventure magazines for boys and stuff like that. And so um, there'd always been, you know, the ninja has always been in legend, uh, even before, you know, it made its way into, into magazine articles and newspapers and books, you know, it really was that oral history. Um, and so it was kind of a favorite, a favorite character, almost like how we have uh, King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table in our yeah. Western society. I think that'd be a pretty good parallel. Um, oh, cool. So yeah. So, the, so going from oral history and legend, you know, into these uh, kind of like loose records and then into these, these children's stories. Um, and then from there, uh, yeah, yeah. Basically it kind of made its way into 
a few a few authors that started to write a little bit more factually and start digging up a little bit more history. Yeah. So, so some of the early chronicles, uh, the Bansen Shukai and some of the other uh, early chronicles of the ninja were these historical documents. Um, you know, t- people argue the different factual histories and, and things like that. Um, but, you know, that's one thing I basically was uh, there's a lot of controversy and there's a lot of history. And so rather than, you know, get caught up in, in proving things and really get into the true history, you know, anyone who's going to say they have the true history of anything, you know, it's, it's a good marketing technique, you know, but, but ultimately it's, it's going to be a pretty tough endeavor to get to the true history of the ninja. Are you going to mm. delve that deeply? You, you mentioned the Bonsen Shuka. That is a ninja. That's a literal ninja scroll, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And are you going to, are you really going to go that deep for Ninja Boom? You know, yeah, it actually has some pretty good cultural, uh, importance. And, uh, some of the people that I've been interviewing, you know, have brought it up and recommended, uh, getting into it a little bit deeper. So, uh, you know, it, it is one of the, the pivotal documents that, that started to make its way into public, public record and, and start to be talked about or historically used, you know, for citing things. So, you know, as I said, I'm not going to, uh, the, the documentary for me is not about, you know, historical accuracy or proving uh, various things in Japanese history. Um, you know, other, other films have tried to do that and, and books and projects and whatnot. But uh, I think it's a little bit more fun to just celebrate all the legends and uh, in the pop culture. And, you know, everyone was, a, everyone was a little kid at some point and was inspired by uh, characters like this. So I think it's more fun to focus on, on all that stuff. I think it's this, going back to the look and stuff too, I think mm-hmm. it's the sleekness. Like a lot of warriors, like, like you mentioned, like knights and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's like, um, like they're like a tank, but a ninja is like a Lamborghini or something. Oh, it's yeah. Like, like just a bomber. A stealth bomber, as opposed to a fucking, I don't know, a jetliner. Well, you know, like a, it's it's yeah. like a sleekness just goes such a long way, you know. Mm-hmm. And one thing that's been fascinating to me is how, uh, like, even in American culture, or I guess I should say Western culture, how we've sort of adopted the phrase, you know, like a ninja. You know, it, when you become yeah. the ultimate at something, you know, we've now we now say like if you're a coder and you're like the best coder you know, working for, you know, Facebook or Instagram or something, you're like a code ninja, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you did some type of trick, you know, if you if you flipped around in gymnastics or, you know, you, you caught something falling off the table, you're like, oh, wow, you're like a ninja. So yeah. in our modern vernacular, you know, it's become you're the ultimate. You're like the best of the best. Right, so, right, right. Yeah, I think that's always going to be fascinating to people. You know, it's it's like the Delta Force or the green berets even before them, you know, now we've got, uh, you know, seal team six and things like that. It's Mm -hmm. like, we always want to see who's going to be, you know, the best of the best. And the ninjas stayed up there, you know, pretty, pretty long time. The ninja has has stayed somehow miraculously. There's something about that character, uh, that continues to, uh, be mysterious. Like you said, stealthy, unknown, and uh, I think that 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 charisma, you know. Yeah, it's like for me, like the top like mythological ones were like the Shaolin Temple 
and mm-hmm. then and then ninjas, you know, like, mm-hmm. and I always found those to be the most interesting. Probably the two most extreme too. Both train and, on mountaintops. Yeah, yeah. mountain chops. One's in China, <laughs> one's in Japan. But you know, there's probably some mm-hmm. connection too. Maybe I don't know. Um, yeah, the back, yeah, the Silk Road. You know, it's like a lot was going on. We think we kind of uh, understand history, but it's really interesting. You know, knowing or not knowing what. Uh, cultures cross-pollinated and and who really traveled from you know from where to where and and what type of information may have been spread you know it might have taken a long time and people might have had to walk for months and sometimes years maybe to get to a different culture but it'd be really interesting you know if you had a time machine to go back and see who actually you know trained with who and and what actually transpired yeah that's yeah I think there's, we're still kind of like unwrapping a lot of Asia, I guess, you know, Sounds um, dirty. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Yeah. That's not what I meant, but all right, whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so who all of you interviewed for this thing, man? Um, you know, so far, uh, I basically been, as I mentioned, I'm self-funded and I kind of been doing it, um, you know, working and saving as much as possible. Then I'll go on these travel trips and, and train. And, uh, I, I had trained martial arts as well too. So it's been kind of a, um, it's been a fun, a fun way to do a little bit of everything, get to train a little bit and then, uh, you know, film and ask some questions. So it's, it's been a real good sort of organic process. Um, but I've tried to, uh, keep it, keep it, sort of broad and interview uh people in who were who were instrumental in the 80s boom like Stephen hayes um and uh bud malmstrom um people who were around uh in the in the actual martial arts world who were bringing uh ninjutsu back from japan in the 80s uh, early seven or late 70s early 80s um, but then also uh, people, like I said, Mar- uh, Larry Hama, who's, uh, you know, creator of some of the G.I. Joe characters um, and people in manga, Japanese animation. Um, yeah. So trying to find some of the people who um, are still alive during the 1960s Ninja Boom. So that's getting a little bit more difficult as, you know, people are getting older. Right. Is that guy that wrote that Bond movie still around? Uh, no, unfortunately, yeah, he passed away. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that was a pretty cool story about uh, James Bond training with the ninjas, Tiger Tanaka, <laughs> um, the underground and, volcano fortress. And that kind of set the seed for the '80s boom too, right? Because that guy, so the guy that wrote that supposedly saw shinobi no mono while in japan and was like who are these guys these are awesome and so he puts them in a bond movie right that's right yeah it was uh that that's really kind of um i think he saw an article in the paper and uh and happened to go see shinobi no mono so there was a there was a review of the film and uh, he read the review and then went and saw the film while it was in the theater and then it helped create the characters for you only live twice. So pretty cool. <laughs> did you interview, uh, the grandmaster Hatsumi for this? I did. Yeah. I've, uh, I've been lucky enough to have a couple trips to Japan, uh, and meet with him. And, um, he's been really supportive of the project and, uh, was able to film him at his home and, 
Uh, he answered a, a lot of great questions that I had. Um, he's uh, getting into a lot of artwork uh, lately. He's he's a painter and calligrapher in addition to you know being a ninja master and uh, <laughs> very gifted all around. But uh, you know, as we started talking more about his artwork, uh, he he covers a lot of the history and uh, more of the cultural folklore um, in his paintings. Uh, things that aren't really maybe talked about openly. Um, as we practice martial arts or, you know, in some of his books, he conveys a lot of important and interesting things in his paintings. So uh, as we got on the subject of his paintings and uh, some of his recent books that have, that are coming out, um, it, it developed into some great stories. So do, do you feel like he might even be like revealing certain things in his artwork that he wouldn't be in, in, in words? I think so. I think that, uh, you know, the, the art that he creates, it's a perfect place to, you know, delve into the mysterious and, you know, it's really subjective and, um, you know, it's artistic. So it doesn't, it's not literal. It's, it's figurative and, you know, he can, he can paint mythological characters and, you know, use metaphors and, uh, so definitely, I think that that's a really perfect place for him to to put some of the more interesting concepts that that are in ninjutsu uh, in his paintings for sure. Can you give us like I don't know? I kind of want like a little preview of that conversation. Like what? I mean, anything else you could kind of like? What, uh, what else did he like talk I'm about? I'm sworn to secrecy. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um. You know, he did He did kind of keep it brief. You know, it, it's still yeah. sort of mysterious. I think it's one of those things that, uh, you know, dealing with someone like him, uh, everything is so multi-layered. You know, he's, yeah. he's such an intelligent man and he is uh, so knowledgeable about uh, so many different subjects, history, um, you know, culture, uh, you know, not only the technical aspects of, of martial arts, you know, like the techniques and whatnot, but you know, the cultural context and how you would use a weapon and when you would use a weapon. Um, yeah, the, the breadth of his knowledge is just, you know, kind of blows my mind. So, you know, I don't think you're going to, uh, it's not going to be spoon fed, you know, you're not just going to be able to come, you know, just get all the secrets. The Ninja Master's not going to, not going to hand them to you. You're going to have to work. <laughs> you're going to have to work for them, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I understand that. <laughs> It reminds me of, uh, you know, Kill Bill with Uma Thurman up on the mountain. You know, it's like she put in I her mean, pain. Yep. She put in her yeah. blood, sweat, and tears to, to get her secret death touch technique down, you know? I, I also, I feel like, again, this is, this is just my personal, uh, what do you call it, interpretation of, like, when I, interv I interviewed him years ago for my, for my ninja documentary, Heart Sword mm -hmm. Perseverance. That was a long time ago. And I wonder if there's times where, because he gets interviewed so much, mm. he's kind of a popular figure, right? Mm -hmm. In Japan, I, definitely. In, even in Japan, and yeah, and worldwide, if you're in if you're into martial arts at all, and uh, if I feel like, you know, he might play into that like Asian grandmaster stereotype when it's beneficial to him. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. do you feel like he might you feel like he might be doing that at times 
Yeah, I mean, I think anyone who's in the public eye uh, would would do best to, you know, uh, kind of go along with it and kind of ride the wave. You know what I mean? If, if they're coming to interview him for a reason, uh, I think that he likes to give people, you know, what they're looking for. Um, he uh, he's a he's a great showman. You know, he studied acting before um, getting into the things that he start, he's been doing with all of his martial arts teaching and um you know his practice as a as a bone doctor and you know acupuncturist and things like that so he he studies the healing arts as well as all the all the martial arts as well um but but prior to that he was definitely interested in acting and uh i think it definitely shows you know he's a he's um a performer and in his role as the grand master of of you know martial arts and ninjutsu he needs to he's in the public eye so you know i think it's good for him to 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 be a showman you know give people a positive uh positive message and you know give them something that they'll remember yeah there's this part in in the movie that i made where he's talking about uh the kanji you may uh dream mm -hmm. and it sounds deep, and when I was like 20, when I made this movie, I was like, this is amazing. And then when I look at it now, it's kind of like, maybe he was trying to say something to me or the audience, but I, I don't know. It kind of felt like also at the same time, he was just telling me some fucking shit. And I'm not saying that mm -hmm. he doesn't know stuff. If, obviously, he's a fucking walking encyclopedia, mm -hmm. but... I don't know. I I feel like maybe he just like said some like deep sounding shit and then <laughs> and then you know let 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 me on my way. Yeah, well maybe you missed your lesson, Andrew. <laughs> maybe you missed it. Maybe maybe he, he gave, it. maybe he gave you the seed of enlightenment and uh and you blew it. You were like you know texting someone or Review something. the tape. Yeah. <laughs> the tape. Texting wasn't even around then when I interviewed him by the way. <laughs> you're uh you're on your Blackberry. <laughs> I think I had a fucking um one of those a Nokia. Nokia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nokia. I had a Nokia at the time. Probably. Yeah. No, I mean never break. Well, once again, you know, I think if you're if you're if you're being a good showman, I mean, and I guess we'd have to get into what uh what someone's responsibility or their job is as the head of a of nine schools of ancient ninjutsu. You know, it's like is it to popularize the yard? Is it to is it to sell a bunch of books and you know, market it because we have a different understanding in the West, you know, everything's about marketing and spin and, and, you know, I think for him, he's basically the inheritor of this cultural legacy. Uh, you know, he's gotten several awards from the emperor of Japan uh, in recent years, all related to, you know, these cultural uh, aspects of the things that he does and, and these histories that he, he is sort of a guardian of. So that's pretty heady stuff. You know, that's a pretty big deal. Um, but it's, it's not the kind of thing, uh, that I, I don't think he's really hurting for members of yeah. his, do his dojo, you know, people from around the world flock. Uh, last time I was there, there was probably close to 200 people, uh, in the dojo at, at one of the biggest, you know, training events by, uh, around his birthday time. So oh, that's right. That's right. No shortage of students. And, uh, it's not exactly like he's, he's like pushing it, you know, it's, it's not like he's advertising. It's just people are are really interested in this stuff, and they're they're flocking to Japan to try to train with them. So, if you watch a Japanese special on Bujinkan and Hatsumi Sensei, it's 
a little bit. There's all it's always it always starts off kind of the same where they go to the the Japanese host walks up to the Hombu Dojo, you know, the headquarters, and uh, they they open the door and they're like, "What?" And it's like all <laughs> foreigners and like to the Japanese audience, they're like, "What?" You know, like yeah. Because ninjutsu and ninjas, it's just so like historical and boring to a lot of Japanese people. Yeah, um, or or they still know? don't think it's real. I think that's that's one thing that's like I think you're right that uh, there's a different perception of ninja in America versus Japan or or in other parts of the world, and then Japan specifically. Uh, and it is intriguing that uh, most of the practitioners are coming from you know, around the world. Uh, but, but definitely the percentage of Japanese to non-Japanese, you know, it's pretty interesting. There's less, way less Japanese than, than other people from around the world. Oh, it's like 5% Japanese. I feel mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. you know, I, I feel like that's gracious. It's, it's, it's pretty nuts. Like, I don't know. This is like a get into a deeper conversation. We don't have to do that. Talk about the whole time. But like, like, I, I wonder, like you got like, like a country like America where we still have a very strong military presence and like being a total badass is still very, very important to us. And yeah, I think the sportification of martial arts too is definitely a huge part of that. You know, it's, it's like you can uh, practice something to become better at it or, you know, for uh, spiritual reasons, you know, to seek enlightenment and things like that. But, uh, you know, after, after world war two, I think that, uh, the culture, you know, obviously shifted tremendously towards, uh, you know, away from, you know, martial arts or combat application, fighting, right, right, things right. like that. So you definitely can't deny uh, World War II's influence on, on how a lot of this changed. And, you know, while we're on the subject, like you said, it's, it's pretty deep and uh, we could definitely get into it. But um, <laughs> a lot of people uh, started training in martial arts, a lot of Westerners. That was really the opening of the gates. You know, a lot of uh, of the GIs that were over there that were either, you know, stationed in Japan during World War II or after the war ended up sticking around, um, started studying judo, jujitsu, you know, some of the different sword schools, whatnot. Um, and that was a huge influence on the opening of of martial arts to the West. And ninjutsu was definitely included in that. So as part of the boom, you know, that I'm going to get into, it's some of the early students that were actually still there after World War II and, you know, hanging out like dojo bums, you know, just kind of wandering around, sampling, trying out different things. Because none of that had really been open and available prior to prior to that time. Are you saying that some GI was unknowingly being taught ninjutsu right after World War II and he didn't know it? I'd say that, yeah, many of the time, because no one really knew what a lot of this stuff was. And so, you know, a lot of times <laughs> ninjutsu wasn't really labeled such, you know, it would have maybe right, been like right. an old school of jujitsu and, and, you know, ninjutsu is sort of like a, a subcategory in some ways, you know, it's like, you're going to learn you're going to learn all the combat applications of, of how to fight. And then somewhere in there is maybe a little bit more of the, the nastier stuff or the, uh, <laughs> you know, the stuff that they don't quite show everybody. Right. Um, or, or even just more of the, of the uh, infiltration techniques and the actual, actual schools of ninjutsu, which would have been, you know, breaking and entering into castles and some of the weaponry and, how to do certain things quietly and silently. So, you know, I don't think a lot of that was taught, uh, 
but I think that the the various schools of of jujitsu that might have contained ninjutsu uh, might have been taught, and people didn't really know what they were learning, you know. And they were trying to just see, like it's weird, you know, because I feel like so much secrecy involved. But the, you're saying that they probably would have just like given away a few little nuggets here and there, and if, trying to see what what student, even though if they were gaijin, they might have picked up on it better. You think they might have been might have been even testing the waters, like it could be, you know. You know? But, but you gotta you gotta think that back at that time, you know, cultural tensions were probably still high. And, oh yeah. Uh, and I do know there there's a few stories of uh, there's one master in particular who uh, who had an army, um, I think it was a sergeant, uh, come visit him because he had he had heard that he was you know a master of jujitsu and some other weaponry, and. Uh, you know, he wouldn't answer the door because, like, here's this guy in a jeep, you know, showing up in his uniform, like knocking on the door. And he just <laughs> want he just wanted to learn jujitsu or or martial arts, you know. And uh, this guy thinks he's like being taken in for questioning, you know. Right. So he wouldn't open the door, and it was only after like several attempts that this guy kept kept showing up and knocking on his door that he he realized like, oh, you're not here to take me. You want to you want to train budo? You want to train martial arts? Right. Oh, okay. But you know, it took forever for him to to like trust him because you know, for all he knew, he was just waiting, waiting to show him, uh, show him something, and then he takes him away in handcuffs, you know, for being yeah. a spy or a spy or something. That's awesome. So yeah, there. I, I'm sure you know there are a lot of stories like that uh, where people were interested, but you know, the Japanese had just lost the war, so you know, teaching the enemy a bunch of your ancient secrets of warfare. I don't know. You know, it must yeah. have been really, really tough in the beginning before things smoothed out a little bit. And they might've just wanted to throw around an American. So you tested on different body types too. I could see that being a, a thing. Yeah. I've heard that. Yeah. There are a lot of times, uh, they, they'd never been able to test it on someone of, you know, someone really tall or something even more heavy set than them. So it was like, try this out and see how, if these techniques really work on these guys. Yeah. Oh man, Stefan, you've been quiet, yeah. dude. Not what do you think? It's been good. I'm excited to see a ninja boom. <laughs> um, no, this Me has been insanely enlightening. About just listening to what you guys are talking about, I feel like I'm listening to a podcast, a real podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very real. I, I guess that's a good sign. <laughs> yeah, I, like I was in the car just relaxing. Yeah. Um, oh man, we've speaking of, we've had Kasim on here uh before and uh is kasim in the movie kasim zugari is definitely in the movie yeah Doc yeah sorry uh, excuse me dr kasim zugari <laughs> yeah <Nice>. phd <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah official superhouse guest he's incredibly knowledgeable and uh his history of of the ninja and japan and uh martial arts in general is just like uh amazing you know the guy's like also equally a walking encyclopedia yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, his uh, we talked to him a lot about the Bonsen Shukai and uh, Shoniki, some of the other you know ninja documents uh, that he's had the chance to read and study, um, and some of the old uh, jujitsu schools uh, of ninjutsu and you know schools that are related to ninjutsu and things like that. So, uh, plus he's uh, him and I are similar age, and so he grew up in France. Uh, as a child of the 80s like myself and so he was getting a different filtered you know uh ninja content coming into france 
He said he can quote the he can quote Bruce Lee's movies in French because he watched the French dub nice <laughs> so many times. Yep. And so uh, you know, I've been to a couple of his seminars and and listened to uh, a lot of his stories and definitely can relate to uh, growing up with just that that cultural influence of cartoons and you know manga and japanese animation hadn't quite made it into america um you know fairly recently really like even now i think you know netflix has a pretty decent library of of anime and um it's taken a while though for it to sort of get over here you know people have a different uh, appreciation of it maybe in america than other parts of the world see this is another tangent but real quick when i first discovered anime it was kind of being promoted at least in america at that time in early to mid 90s it was being promoted as violent cartoons from japan mm. that are drawn better than ours too and sexually so, yeah different too yeah like I, adult I, cartoons like what adult is cartoons this? homer simpson says damn but this is crazy you mm -hmm, know mm -hmm. so it was it was like you know akira and ghost in the shell demon city shinjuku and and mm -hmm. and uh eight men after these all these movies ninja like scroll Don't ninja, ninja scroll, scroll of course yeah ninja scroll huge <laughs> for me so mm -hmm. seeing all these films like crazy and then and then i think shortly after that pokemon and dragon ball came out and i think that kind of i don't know it it changed it flipped the script that i think a little, a little bit more from from how PG i 13 a little bit more g rated yeah, versions yeah how i came to know it I, yeah my my initial introduction to anime was violent bloody stuff mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah it was the first time that we had cartoons because in our culture cartoons equal you know are equal like rated g and uh yeah and yeah, are, yeah. Are kid friendly and then you know i think there were a few animated movies uh like feature films that um I'm trying to think of some right now that that uh cool like water, world the Ralph yeah, Bakshi cool, movies yeah watership down even some of these um mm -hmm. uh yeah that kind of made it into a heavy metal culture. yeah heavy metal's a great one yeah um but but not very many you know and so the concept of an adult cartoon was a little bit of an oxymoron still um right so right. Yeah, so that was definitely a change when when it came over into America and Japanese animation kind of had to be uh digested a little bit. Nice. Uh mm -hmm. I think we're almost done, but I wanted to ask your favorite ninja movie of all time. Oh man, putting me on the spot. That's a tough one, you know. We're talking eras now. I've had the luxury of uh of watching a lot here this this documentary. I'm I'm really up on all my stuff now, so it's uh I have to really go back to Revenge of the Ninja though, you know, to be honest. That's uh -huh. that's definitely you know, he's up on the roof and he's got a metal mask on and you know, there's there's flames going on. It's just the whole thing is just a spectacle. So I'd still probably say Revenge of the Ninja. See, I feel like you, since you're a little bit older than us, you're just like just maybe around ten years older than us. So you had you grew up with the '80s like ultra badass shit. Mm -hmm. So Seth and I are born '84, and our introduction was mm -hmm. Ninja Turtles. Yeah, hundred percent. So mm -hmm. that was huge for us. And then um, you know, nin probably Ninja Scroll after that. So we got like a little like a lot of kitty stuff. Then, yeah. you know, really violent ones. So I, I don't know. We were maybe a little yeah. all over the map. But yeah, Ninja Turtles were like the biggest thing for us. For sure. In that time period. Yeah, also for me too. But I think uh, 
it's funny because this documentary, um, when I first started working on it, I really thought that maybe it would be kind of niche. It would just kind of resonate with uh, people of my generation that uh, kind of grew up with this 80s culture, VHS culture, you know, riding your BMX bike to the video store to rent a couple movies to take home and you put it in your, your big, huge VHS player, your VCR, and, you know, like top loading, like you push it in and you pop it down. Yeah. And the thing is like as big as your TV. Uh, yeah. You know, that's just what I remember doing. We'd all get on our bikes and we'd ride down and, and peruse the action section, you know, and it was like Chuck Norris and, uh, and uh, all the ninja films and uh, Charles Bronson. And so this was like, you know, you're, you're looking at the cover kind of like when people would uh, talk about listening to, to albums on, you know, like records and like, you're looking at the cover art of the LP, you know, like that was my, that was a generation before me, you know, listening to records on record players. But uh, this was kind of the equivalent, you know, you're looking at the big blister pack kind of plastic VHS cassette box uh, right. trying to figure out what the movie's about, you know, looking at the little like thumbnail images, you know, like, this is a good one. Let's bring this one home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, it was really all about that. But it's funny because uh, as I started telling other people about the film, I realized that, you know, even uh, people a little bit older than me, because adults were, were loving these movies, you know, when um, when Enter the Ninja came in and Revenge of the Ninja came in, you know, that was like 81, 83 you know, 1985 was nine, nine deaths of the ninja. So, you know, if you're an adult in the eighties, you were still going to these movies. Um, but then people younger than me, like such as yourself, uh, when the Ninja Turtles hit, that was like a whole new generation that got scooped up and, uh, just thrown into the ninja vibe, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, Naruto, like after yeah. that. So there's yeah. even like a third wave, uh, yeah, like a little bit younger. Generation. Yeah. yeah. I've been to Anime LA and and, and uh, was it the other anime convention? I can't think of it now. Anyway, like you see Naruto uh, cosplay more than any other fucking cosplay, dude. Like this, there's a whole generation ten years younger than us, I guess, and younger that like that's their fucking shit, you know. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think in, in some ways, Nar Nar Naruto is at least not realistic, of course, but it, it leans more into you know, traditional ninja myths than yeah. Ninja Turtles the, ever did really, you know? Yeah. The mysticism kind of came back in when, once again, it's from Japan again. So it's going to yeah. be a little bit, it's going to be a little bit more hip to some of those cultural nuances that that's, I guess what you'd call like kind of getting lost in translation a little uh, Ninja Turtles were more like stoners, you know, they, they were like <laughs> they hang, surfer out, skateboarder, eating, dude. <laughs> eating, eating, eating pizza, you know, shreds. <laughs> exactly. Well, no so, fucking, uh, Naruto is always fucking eating that ramen. There you go, junk food, ninjas and junk food. Something, something <laughs> going on there. But yeah, man. Something I guess you got to be fast. You know, you got a subsection of your documentary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the ninja diet. You know, <laughs> ninja new diet. Health craze, new health craze. There's some. There's been some articles about ninja, the original ninja diets, right? Like, yeah, yeah. They like don't eat smelly foods stuff. and shit. Yeah, and even uh, like take brown rice and you know overboil it and then you you mash it up and squeeze out the juice and then you sort of put that in like a little bamboo thermos and you just kind of sip on that while you're you're hiding out in the trees whoa uh, there's, there's all kinds of cool stuff uh like chestnuts and um like ferns and other stuff that they would eat up in the mountains to kind of stay alive while hiding out or 
on long distance journeys. There's a lot of cool stuff. Mm. Wow. That's fucking awesome. Yeah. There's, I've learned a lot. That's one of the great things I think about documentary projects is um, you delve into it with uh with a question and you know trying to solve a solve a riddle or answer a question and uh i've just tried to keep it nice nice and loose and organic so that uh you know as i learn and and can kind of adapt and i've learned tons it's been it's been really fascinating this whole subject sometimes i feel like i have more questions than i have answers at this point oh yeah that happens i think Mm -hmm. so is is shinobi no mono the most realistic uh ninja movie well, they had, you know, they had uh, Hatsumi Sensei and his teacher Takamatsu Sensei uh, were, you know, both actively involved in uh, in teaching the actors uh, sword work and how to walk and and a lot of the cultural history, you know, the weaponry. They supplied a bunch of actual ninja weapons for the film and things like that. So, right, um, I think that's one of the things uh, when you read reviews from the film when it came out in the '60s. Um, they just it, it blew everybody away because everyone was so used to a certain kind of movement and when you'd watch you know the different films it's like the suspension of disbelief you know it's like okay here's the sword fight you know or all right here's the action sequence now they're gonna fight and it was more like uh like stage acting you know like stage fighting yeah but but uh in that film it just blew everybody away because of it was so different it looked so real and uh, I think the only way I can kind of equate it is uh, if you ever remember the first time you watched uh, The Bourne Identity or, yeah. uh, or some of these uh, more modern action movies where they really got the choreography right, where they really took their time to try to make it realistic and believable. Yeah. And, you know, it sort of like blew everyone away. Like, oh, okay, yeah, Jason Bourne can fight. Like, I You're get right. it. So that's what it's supposed to look like. Yeah. <laughs> best ninja video game well once again i'm uh <laughs> i'm a little older than you guys so uh shinobi okay yeah, yeah. sega <laughs> i would go to the arcade skateboard to the arcade with a handful of quarters and play shinobi on the stand <laughs> stand-up arcade version yeah. we had this arcade by my house called tilt and nice. uh it was like the coolest place ever so i think shinobi definitely definitely all-time favorite you ever play tenchu tenchu definitely yeah that one's probably getting into the most realistic i don't know how realistic you'd want a ninja video game but uh i don't know i thought that was one of the best ones probably myself i think they could uh they could probably make something better you know they could really i'm surprised that uh they haven't come out with something a little bit better realistic more culturally right you know maybe that's a nice a nice new project someone could tackle. Yeah, and you know they got that new samurai game called Ghosts of Tsushima, mm-hmm. and they fucking got the Tenshin Hyoho guys. You know what I'm talking about? Sure. Yeah, they got them to do fucking uh, motion capture for the game. That's cool. So there needs to be at least some sort of ninja version of this. They got the Sekiro game out, but that I think that also is not going to be too realistic. It looks cool, but Anyway, that's a whole other conversation. Try to I feel like it's like a little bit of stay on target. Yeah. Um, but you so, know, a red a red dead redemption version of uh of Shinobi, you know. You been saying it for bad, years. Badass that would be. Oh man. Been saying it for years. <laughs> <laughs> they will not make it for some reason. <laughs> that would be dope though. That the guys that make Yakuza shouldn't make that game. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because they're Japanese developer. <sighs> cool, man. This has been fucking awesome. Uh, Stefan, no questions, dude? Um, What's a good book that you'd recommend um, the subject of Ninja for the beginner? I, th- I think, uh, you know, Stephen Hayes' books, Stephen K. Hayes was his kind of dubbed the uh, grandfather of, of ninjutsu in America and kind of helped spread that around the world. Um, you know, and so you have to definitely, uh, look at them from when they were written back when there wasn't a lot of information and he was the first one kind of coming out. Um, Mm -hmm. so those are, those are really fun. They're, they're a fun read. And that was kind of my introduction to ninjutsu back in the eighties. You know, since then there's been a lot of, a lot of different cultural books coming Mm -hmm. out and more historical books. Uh, Kasem Zagari has a, a great book out that delves a lot more into the actual history um, cool. and that's really fun. Um, Andy Adams was, uh, was one of the first people to write about the ninja. He was one of those guys who was sort of in Japan and, and maybe saw Shinobi no Mono or read some articles about Shinobi no Mono and got, got into it. So he's kind of credited with one of the first Americans to actually write about it. So, uh, his book's great. Cause it's like what was going on in the sixties, this guy's just in Japan, kind of like a news correspondent, you know, just like writing, interviewing these guys. And, mm-hmm. uh, so, so his book, uh, is great. Um, yeah, you know, Amazon's got quite a bit. There's a lot of, there's a lot of junk out there too. You know, Ashita Kim, he's kind of famous <laughs> for being like, there's a few guys that, uh, were part of this eighties ninja boom that capitalized on it. And back then, you know, there was no Snopes, there was no fact checking on the internet so these guys could kind of invent their uh their diplomas and pretend that they studied with some ancient ninja master sometime you know back in the day and uh create their own credentials so there's a lot of frauds fakes and frauds out there too so yeah Mm -hmm. ashita a japanese last name is his first name and kim uh korean korean first name i guess i don't know it's korean anyway so there's like red flags even in his name. Yeah, I'm definitely I'm gonna have some fun. Uh, part of my documentary is gonna definitely be to talk about uh, some of the fra- the fakes and the frauds, and how people uh, you know took advantage of of no fact checking back in the day, mm-hmm. and could just these insta dojos <laughs> would just pop up, you know, with these these lineages out of nowhere. So it's pretty fun. And you're trying to get this thing on Netflix, correct? um i believe that would be a really good a good outlet for it um you know when i first started this film about five years ago so much has changed um the the camera technology you know what i was able to shoot with back when i first started to now that's been really amazing you know smaller cameras better image quality so you know the stakes for documentary filmmaking's kind of been raised there's been so many good films coming out um cartel land i don't know if you guys seen that that's like beautiful documentary about uh you know the border and uh these guys kind of embedded themselves on on both sides of the border uh with mexico and kind of delved into the whole uh crisis or you know um situation at least down there um so but but they took something that was more like war correspondence uh you know they're wearing bulletproof vests it's like getting shot at means but they're shooting beautiful cinematic images and using drones and so i saw that a couple of years back when it premiered and um got to talk with the filmmakers there and it was like man you know for a documentary they they shot it 
super cinematically and just beautifully. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of trying to do something similar where even though it's historical and interesting, I really want to uh, capture, you know, everything simple and, uh, you know, give it the justice it deserves. And how's your Kickstarter going for this project? Um, yeah, I haven't launched it yet. That's okay. uh, going to be forthcoming. I'm, I'm uh, waiting until the beginning of the year and uh, just waiting on a couple more things and then uh, going to go live with uh, some crowdfunding. I, uh, I've been doing it as much as I can on my, on my own, but you know, I've gotten so much interest and there's been such positive feedback that uh, I really realized that you know, with documentaries these days, uh, letting the fans and everyone else be part of the process it's it's really kind of great it's really rewarding so i figured in order to do this the way i really want to do it um it'd be great to get the finishing funds to finish the production with you know the highest quality you know graphics and motion graphics and you know licensed music and just everything you know you need to do to to make a documentary really pop so i'll be doing that probably uh january february so look out for that i'll i'll be hitting everyone up on kickstarter most likely for my crowdfunding push for the the finishing funds nice anything else any other plugs you want to plug before uh, heading out here uh not really um basically just uh you know thanks for having me on and i'm super psyched about getting the project finished and uh getting it into everyone's hands you know and and watching it so super psyched fucking awesome dude thanks for for coming on this has been an enlightening interview and uh <laughs> i knew yeah. it would be and uh fuck i feel like we need a part two man maybe after the thing comes out yeah i'd love to come back yeah it's um, awesome it's always a pleasure with you guys so appreciate it all right, everybody, uh, that was Matthew Childs, the director of the Ninja Boom documentary. As he said in the interview, it's going to be finishing this year, so be on the lookout for that. Hopefully, we will have him back on after the movie is out and complete and all that, and hopefully he'll be on Netflix or Amazon Prime or or Hulu, or who knows what, you know. So thanks to Matt. Thank We'd like to thank him for coming on. It was fucking awesome for him to take the time to do that. And uh, it's always good to talk about this yeah. ninja stuff. What do you think, Stefan? Oh, it was great. I can't wait to see his documentary and see what he's come up with. Not only that, I was glad I asked that book question because he had a wealth of information there and get in on some ninja books. Yeah, that Stephen Hayes guy is more or less accredited for kind of making it popular in america in mm -hmm. the 80s mm -hmm. i mean you could probably trace even revenge of the ninja like back to him he i don't think he made the movie but you know right. bringing the the just the idea of that character you know uh pop culture wise to america so mm -hmm. uh yeah and um anyway i think that's going to do it I'd like to thank shasta and matt herring for their patreon patronage if you want to donate to our Patreon, please go to patreon.com slash superhousepodcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash superhousepodcast. We're on all the social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, and we also have a Redbubble and T Public store if you want to check that out. That's T-E-E public.com. Search for Superhouse Podcast on all the social media. We're there. I'm Thunderwolf drew on twitter and what was yours again stefan 
Wolfie Cruz on his Instagram, W-O-L-F-I-E-C-R-U-Z-Z, two words. Um, and yeah. All right, cool. And I guess that's going to do it. This is Andrew signing off. This is uh, Wolfie signing off. This is Stefan from the Superhouse Podcast. Be sure to check us out on Patreon, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and any other godforsaken social media outlet that we that we should be floating on. We are basically on all social media. <laughs> yeah, all social media. Mainly Facebook and Twitter and Patreon. Check out the links in the description. We have a lot of uh, cool goals uh, set up on our Patreon. Like if you donate a dollar you'll be able to uh, give us a topic for us to talk about. And we'll talk about for maybe an hour or more. Who knows how long it'll take. And that's pretty tight. (laughs) That's the coolest thing. (laughs) Wait, we're on the internet? That's pretty good. (laughs) And we can make money. (laughs) What? (laughs) If you donate $1,000, you get full frontal nudes. We haven't set that up, but it's a possibility. (laughs) You give us a grant, who knows what'll happen. Check us out. (laughs) I'll do that. I'll do that. (laughs) You get to go on a date with one of us for $10,000. <laughs> but you pay for everything. <laughs> you get to have your way with Maddie for $20,000. I'll give you Joey for a weekend. For $30,000, we'll help you hide a body. Check out our Patreon. <laughs> Superhouse Gigolo Project. 2018. <laughs>